Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GEMCAST. You know, the other day, I was literally yesterday, I think, I was doing a Grand Rounds to Virginia Tech, and they had asked me to speak on geriatric trauma. And one of the questions I got at the end was, how should we be managing vertebral compression fractures? And my response was, hold tight. Tomorrow, I'm recording a podcast on that. So I'm here with Bob Dax. He has worked in EDs in the rural area community hospitals for over three decades. He's boarded in the past in both geriatrics and family medicine and currently works at a community hospital in upstate New York, where he has also been the assistant director and vice chair for a long time. So Bob, welcome to GEMCAST. This is such a timely topic given that question. Pleasure to meet you, Christina, and thanks for having me. This is a topic I just love to talk about. It's one of those neglected topics that people have questions about, and so I'm really excited to have a discussion with you today about it. Well, let's start out with just how common is it? You know, we when we think about trauma, we think about the car accidents, we think about massive transfusion, aortic transactions, but so much of trauma, as any GEMCAST listener knows, in older adults is falls. And one of the injuries people sustain are vertebral compression fractures. So how common is it just population-wide? It is extraordinarily common. The numbers are based on estimates. So I'm a, I'll give you the estimates. You know, there is approximately three quarters to 1.5 million cases of patients arriving either in the ED, their doctor's office with vertebral compression fractures. It results in anywhere from 50 to 150,000 hospitalizations. And it is really the most common fragility fracture. I think we all think about hip fracture as the most common one that we see and we think about. But if you think back to you know, your experience seeing your geriatric patients in the ED, they may be presenting with that back pain that's vertebral compression fracture, or they had it in the past. So it is the most common fragility fracture. And you know, if you do any number of shifts in the next couple of weeks, you're going to come across any number of these patients showing up with acute back pain. And so it's common. You can't, it, you'll, you'll see it. You can't miss it. Now, one of the challenges is often because it's so common, if somebody comes in after a fall, being able to tell whether this vertebral compression fraction is from the fall or whether it's chronic. So how often are these just asymptomatic and you just find it incidentally from on an x-ray? Yeah, so that's a great question. So it appears that approximately two thirds of all vertebral compression fractures that become identified are noted in asymptomatic patients. So they're there. Patients may have just had some back pain, had it for a number of days or weeks, and then blew it off and never came for care. Or, you know, they saw their doctor and, oh, it was musculoskeletal strain. Goodbye. Have a good day. So two thirds of them are actually asymptomatic. When they come in, they'll, they'll present often with minor trauma. It does not take a lot of trauma to cause a, ver a vertebral 
compression fracture. You'll see them. In fact, my last case I saw was a woman who was just in a car and they hit a very small speed bump at a very low rate of speed, but just the, you know, the vertical up and down boom of the speed bump resulted in her compression fracture. Some of these actually happen in sleep, turning in bed. Again, because these are patients who have osteoporosis or at risk for osteoporosis, and any little minor trauma will cause them to have a, a, an acute fracture. Wow, gosh, even a speed bump, or you know, I've seen in addition to falls, things like just bending over, sneezing, mm-hmm. or like you said, up to 30% of them can occur just at rest with no identified trauma. So getting a good trauma history, but even recognizing that they don't have to have fallen or been in a car accident, it could be, you know, this raises some public health questions about the utility of speed bumps in my mind. What are we, <laughs> what are we accidentally doing by adding these speed bumps? Although we also want to, you know, control traffic. Okay, separate <laughs> story. What are the risk factors? You mentioned fragility, but what are some of the other risk factors that might raise our level of concern for patients who may get vertebral compression fractures? Yeah, so the classic is osteoporosis. So if you go back to medical school 101, you know, the risk factors for osteoporosis are, of course, age, gender, women more than men, small body size, Caucasian and Asian women are more at risk than African-American, and, and of course, family history. So that, that's the classic osteoporosis things. But then there's a few others that I think we should keep in mind as clinicians. It's these pa- patients such as chronic steroid use. So it, you know, if you're just taking more than five milligrams a day for three months, that puts you at higher risk. Increased alcohol use. Patients who are ha- hyper parathyroid at risk, vitamin D deficiency. And then the real worrisome ones are patients who have metastatic disease or osteomyelitis. So patients who have those acute problems can have a compression fracture due to a a bad underlying condition. And those we have to really watch out for. Yes. When is it more than just a vertebral compression fracture? When is the compression fracture really a symptom of something worse from malignancy or osteomyelitis? Right. Can I add one other if possible? Mm -hmm. So I've talked about osteoporosis. And then we alluded to this a little bit earlier, patients who are at risk for falls, just simple ground level falls. So your post-stroke patients, your Parkinson patients are classics for just going down just from ground level falls. And so those patients are also at high risk for developing the vertebral compression fractures, along with their other fragility fractures, such as their hip fracture. So let's say we have a frail elderly, let's, let's make it really specific. We have an 81-year-old woman. She went over that speed bump and she's coming in with a little mid-lowish, mid-back pain. What evaluation should we do in the ED? What's your thought process or workflow for identifying these? Sure. Like every good clinician, we start with history and physical. So good history. What? No, we don't. We go straight to ultrasound. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no. Well, in some places it's just physics. CT. Physical. So no. <laughs> um, so no. Let's start with the history and physical. So starting with the history and physical. Of course, you got the history of the speed bump. Got it. Acute back pain. Got it. Location. You can get a 
vertebral compression fracture from anywhere in the C-spine all the way down to the bottom of the lumbar spine. But the overwhelming majority of the patients will have that compression fracture between T10 and L2. So if that's the, you know, if they're complaining in that location, maybe some tenderness on palpation may not, but if that's where they're identifying pointing to, all right, your antenna should go up on exam. The last part of the exam, of course, we really want to make sure there's no neurologic complications. The overwhelming majority do not. We can talk about that a little bit more as we move forward, but the overwhelming majority do not. But always do your neuro exam. Don't, don't blow past it and go right to advanced imaging. We can talk about imaging next if, if you're so inclined. Yes. Yeah, so tell us about, I mean, typically we start with x-rays, you know, two views looking for those compression fractures or maybe a lytic lesion or something else. But I know, for example, when we've talked about hip fractures before, there's about, you know, only 90 to 98% sensitivity. So we're going to miss some and like rib fractures don't even get me started with how bad x-rays are. How good are x-rays for our vertebral compression fractures? They're probably somewhere in the same order of rib fractures. There's, there's wide estimates on the false negative rate. Estimates range anywhere from 13% all the way up to 70% false negatives. And there's many reasons for that. Te- a lot of them are just technical factors. You know, obesity, for example, makes the picture difficult to, to get a good picture. The difference between fracture and DJD. And it's one of those things also when you put... You know, two radiologists in the same room trying, looking at the same picture, often they'll come up with discordant results. So coming up with a false negatives is common. And even occasionally false positives have come up also when you get a reading back from your radiologist. So the false negative rate is what we're we're really seeing very commonly. So, okay. So if we get an x-ray and it lines up where it hurts is where there's a compression fracture. Perfect. We've diagnosed it. But let's say the x-ray is read as negative but there's or inconclusive, but they do have some significant point tenderness or pain. Where are you going next in terms of diagnostics? Okay. So going next, you have your advanced imaging and we'll talk about CT and we'll talk about MRI. So both are, are very, very useful. CT is good at identifying fracture. I think we've all gotten used to uh, looking at CTs and the bones, and they're very, very helpful for identifying fracture. The, The biggest problem with CT is that how many times do you get the report We've all gotten this report, identified a a vertebral fracture, can't identify if it's new or old. Well, again, you can put one and one together. If this is acute pain in that location, you can be fairly certain you're dealing with new. But if you're still sitting in that quandary, new versus old, then MR is, MRI is really where it'll be most useful. Why? Because you see acute edema on MRI. And that'll be very, very useful in identifying new versus old. Now, do you have to get it on day one? You call your MRI person in in the middle of the night to get your MRI? Probably not. I think you, you may upset just a few MRI techs if you're calling them at 2 a.m. in the morning to get that MRI. But there are a few times that you want to call MRI early, of course, if there's the, go back to the physical exam, 
if you have any neurologic deficits or concerns, then you need to go right to MRI. Is that your practice? Is that you folks have been doing your way? Yes, definitely. You know, starting with the x-ray and then neurologic deficits. Actually, if there's neuro deficits, I might even skip the x-ray and just go straight to MRI because I know we need the MRI and that's going to save time. And then if we're looking for other things, if we're getting maybe an osteomyelitis picture, the patient really had some sort of surgery or intervention, or is at risk for bacteremia or systemic infection, then, or discitis, you know, if they're having kind of a smoldering infectious picture, then MRI would be our go-to also. Yeah, that's been our practice. Absolutely. So I think we're very concordant on our, the way we're approaching this. And I think that's, it's very sound sort of algorithm you and I just laid out. So let's say we've diagnosed it now. They have some pain. They have either an acute compression fracture on MRI or a compression fracture on x-ray that's concordant with the side of pain. What do we do next? Do these people need to go see neurosurgery or do they need braces? You know, especially I'm, I'm fortunate to work my main site where I work, we have neurosurgery in-house, you know, 24 seven, but I'm very aware that for many practicing physicians, that means transferring a patient to often many miles away. So what do these patients need acutely in terms of management? Well, interesting you bring up that you have neurosurgery available, which is very, very useful. And in fact, I became interested in this topic when we had one neurosurgeon left at our community hospital and then he left. And what happened at that point was our hospitalist group came to us and said, oh, you have to transfer all the vertebral compression fractions. I said, wait a minute, we can't, we can't be transferring every single compression fracture that doesn't have any neurologic issues going on to the referral center. It will just overload them. We can't do that. And if you look at the data, there's one a very nice study, retrospective, so take it for its worth, but it's a retrospective study that said actually only 2% of these 500 patients that were looked at actually need neurosurgical intervention. So, you know, we'll talk about that, if I may, just for a second. Who needs that neurosurgical intervention? Of course, you have neurodeficits or just on your radiographs, whether it's plain or advanced imaging, you see any retropulsed fragments. So if you see those, that would be your signal to get neurosurgery involved. Otherwise, if you're in a community hospital like me with no neurosurgery, you can pretty confidently speak with your hospitalist saying, listen, I feel comfortable. This person does not have to go to a tertiary care center. We can manage this here. And now we'll talk about the pain, because whether you're going to admit the patients or send them home, we'll talk about the pain. Yeah. And so, you know, you're telling this patient something that will sound very alarming to them because they're going to hear spine and broken, even though we know it's not, you know, an unstable fracture, it's a compression fracture. But now we're saying, okay, you don't need neurosurgical intervention if you don't have retropulse fragments and you are neurologically intact. So how do we then manage their pain safely to not cause medication side effects and also not cause worse future falls? Sure. So this gets tricky. This is really difficult because you're dealing with a geriatric population who are very sensitive or cannot tolerate a number of our analgesics. So when we're dealing now with analgesics, we, we have to keep in mind, I like to break them up into the 
a couple of categories. We have our non-narcotics and we have our narcotics or opiates. When we're dealing with the non-narcotics, I like to tell patients, we, we don't really have much in that, that bucket, that armamentarium. We have acetaminophen and we have NSAIDs. And acetaminophen clearly is the one I like to go to first. It's the safest in the elderly. If they can tolerate the three grams a day, wonderful. That's, and that helps them go there. The role of NSAIDs, you have to be cautious with, of course, in the geriatric patient. It, it does cause some renal insufficiency. There, it, it gives them you know, peptic ulcer disease. And so we always have to be cautious about using NSAIDs in the elderly. On the other bucket, we have our opiates. And there's, of course, a bucket load of side effects associated with the opiates in the elderly. You have your hydrocodones, your oxycodones, and so on and so forth. But the, the side effects, the constipation, the sedation, oh, another fall, and another vertebral compression fracture, those are problematic. If you were going to use those, and you sometimes have to, I often will recommend them use them at bedtime, perhaps, to just try to get some sleep, because it's, it's interesting. In my experience, when patients come in with just generic back pain, even the young patients, and I ask them, how are you sleeping? They'll just shake their heads and say, that's the worst thing. I can't sleep at night. And people just want to get some rest and sleep. So in the particularly the geriatric population, I may use some opiates at nighttime if necessary. Of course, I try to avoid them, but that's, that's there as a rescue. Last but not least, there is one other medication that a lot of physicians, I believe, are not yet aware of. At least my colleagues keep forgetting this one. And that's the use of nasal calcitonin. So nasal calcitonin is very easy to use. The data has suggested it is useful. Now, I will say the data is limited. There's been five studies, randomized controlled placebo studies, with a whole whopping 250 patients in these five studies. So we're not dealing with huge numbers. But it does suggest that the visual analog scales in these studies, in these elderly patients who got nasal calcitonin, their pain decreased quicker over time in that first month compared to the placebo group. So when it comes to nasal calcitonin, for me, it's a little of a no harm, no foul choice. It's very simple to use. It's one spray once a day, alternating nostrils every other day. And from a cost standpoint, if you go on any of those websites, GoodRx or anyone, they're about $50 or $60 for the one month supply. So that is an almost always I give in these situations, whether they're being admitted or whether they're going home. That's a great pearl. And, uh, you know, hopefully they will do more research to see, you know, how effective is it, but that is something that is new to my practice. So for treatment, pain management, starting with acetaminophen, opioids as needed, giving, I always, whenever I prescribe an opiate to an older person, I also prescribe the combo colase and senna to prevent them having to now come back in for a, a bowel impaction, which I have seen happen. And then the nasal calcitonin, which that is a great pearl. What about bracing? 
that's always a question for me. Who needs a brace? Is there a benefit? You know, there's, it often takes a long time to get braces done because we have to call down our prosthetics shop and, and get them fitted and all of that. So it takes a long time and the patients say it's typically pretty uncomfortable. How much of a benefit is it? And is it worth those challenges? I would love to say this is really beneficial. Unfortunately, there's been study after study after study, and there's been meta-analysis looked at all this, and they all come up with the same conclusion, that the data is inconclusive. So I can't give a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on bracing. And, and part of the problem is that there's all these different types of braces. They're typically called TLSO braces, thoracic, lumbar, sacral, orthotics. But if you were to look online, you just Google these braces. There are all different sizes, types, shapes, forms. And the studies have been done with all these different types, shapes, forms different patient populations. And so the data is really inconclusive. If you have the time and luxury of getting a brace fitted and the patient finds relief and comfort with it, again, I, I don't have a problem with it, but I, I do not tell patients, this is really going to help you. I often say, if this you find this is comfortable and this helps, great. If you cannot deal with this big hardware around your thor your thorax and, and abdomen and back, you don't necessarily have to wear it. What about physical therapy? Should we be sending these patients home with home PT or with referrals to PT? Are they going to be able to do it with the pain? Does it help? What should we be doing there? Again, I feel like a broken record at this point. I, I, it, the same thing has happened with the PT studies. That is, all different types of PT have been tried, moving this way, moving that way, different. It, it, there's no standardized PT for this issue. And so the data remains completely inconclusive. Again, if it's one of the things that helps, and I have no problems, you know, requesting a PT eval and see if the patient will, you know, finds there's some benefit. I do believe there's just the, the benefit of trying to get up and go and move instead of sitting around at home, developing their DVT, PE, and, or other, you know, decubiti or other things that can happen when you just sit around at home or lay in bed. So attempts at getting up and going and going to PT, I think is least worth a try, but I can't tell you it's going to decrease the pain or get them up and, you know, doing their activities of daily living like they were doing beforehand quickly. It's funny, you know, Bob, this sounds, it's a lot like hurry up and do nothing. We want to identify it so that we know, but really our role is to see is there anything more dangerous going on? Is there retropulsed, you know, fracture? Are there neuro deficits? Is this actually a lytic lesion or, you know, malignancy that's caused this or osteo? If it's an uncomplicated vertebral fracture, then really it's about managing their pain. There's not something specific that will, you know, treat it. When I think about geriatric trauma in general, my paradigm is thinking about what are the things that predispose them to injuries? What is it that makes them more likely to have injuries? And then what are the sequelae? So for example, some of the things we've talked about that would predispose people to vertebral fractures are 
more likelihood of falling or other injuries. And then when you do fall or even have that minor trauma, the osteoporosis and osteopenia that are gonna make you more likely to have a compression fracture. But then the other side is thinking about what are the complications associated with it? So both the direct complications, so maybe pain from the site of injury that then could lead to indirect things. So if you are now less likely to get up and walk around because it's painful, you might be more bed bound for a while, which could put you at higher risk of venous thromboembolism or pneumonia or skin breakdown and decubitus ulcers, or that can lead to the falls and frailty fragility vicious cycle that now you're deconditioned, now you have higher risk of future falls and higher risk of hip fractures or future vertebral compression fractures in the future. Yeah, these future complications are, are, are absolutely real. Having one vertebral compression fracture, the patient has a one in five chance of having another one within the next 12 months. And a lot of that is now their, their ambulation is not the same as it was before. So they're ambulating a little differently and they teeter-totter and go down and have another compression fracture, or now they get their hip fracture. There's a two to three time increased risk of developing a hip fracture in the next year. So having one of these vertebral compression fractures really potentially could pretend for something bad down the road. So I, I know we all take them seriously. I'm hoping with this podcast, everyone's going to take them even more seriously. Yeah, and maybe that's even an argument for referral to PT, not necessarily for the vertebral fracture, but to build strength because there is that two to three higher risk of hip fracture after a vertebral compression fracture. Well, let's say that we saw a patient and diagnosed a vertebral compression fracture, no neuro deficits, sent them home with an appropriate pain regimen and GI regimen, and then they come back in a few days or a few weeks later and they say, you know, Dr. Dax, it's still hurting, or maybe now they're having a little bit of a neuro deficit. What should we be thinking at that point? So you come back and what do we do? We do that history and physical again. And so, yes, (laughs) yes. What can I say? I'm old school. history and physical. And so if they come back saying, I'm now having some numbness and tingling, or I'm having some urinary incontinence, you start saying, okay, let's do that neuro exam. Because there are times, there are rare cases that you can get a late neuro complication. In other words, that fracture was there, didn't have an initial retropulsed fragment, but over time, Boom, it then progressed and then retropulsed and can give some spinal cord impingement. And these neural complications have been known to show up anywhere from one week to a year and a half later. So be aware that a late neural complication can occur. The other thing, and what is more common, you've already alluded to, is ongoing pain. So we have patients who I like to tell them, and I, I always like to give all my patients, but in particular this, in this situation, uh, these patients, anticipatory guidance. So the anticipatory guidance on the patients that I might be sending home is that, yes, we're going to work with nasocalcitonin, we'll work with Tylenol, we'll work with NSAIDs if necessary, work with some opiates if necessary. We'll go through the, all those things we've already talked about. And in general, the overwhelming number of them will have diminished pain over a period of time. And 
it, however, takes a long time. It's been shown that those patients in a number of these trials who get placebo, who get nothing compared to treatment, that even with placebo, at a year's time, the majority of patients will have a VAS, VAS score of two. So that means a fair number will be zero, and then the confidence interval on the other side, some will have, have continued pain. So we tend to see that group that has continued pain. They come back. Why might they have continued pain? And there's, there's two potential reasons for having ongoing pain as opposed to some healing over time that happens in most fracture management. The two reasons for ongoing pain is a non-union that can occur. So the bones didn't mend. It, it, it's a non-union. Or the fracture interrupted the blood supply, and now you have avascular necrosis. So I, I believe many of us physicians in the ER, we're, we're pretty familiar with avascular necrosis of the hip. We're all familiar with that, but you can disrupt the blood supply to that vertebral body and develop an avascular necrosis. And for you trivia fans out there, that's known as Cummel's disease. It was named by Dr. Cummel about a century ago. So be aware that that ongoing pain does happen in a minority of the patients, or there could be another fracture. Always think about that. So those are the reasons they will potentially show back up with us in the ER. I love that little trivia, the Cummel's disease, avascular necrosis from non-union. Well, the best fracture is the one that never happens, the one that we can prevent, or maybe secondary prevention. If the patient comes in with a vertebral fracture and we know that now there is a high likelihood uh, 20% likelihood of getting another vertebral compression fraction in, fracture in the next year, what can we do as secondary prevention in the ED, especially for patients who don't have great access or transportation to primary care? Because often these are things that we think about, well, see your PCP and they can do that. But patients who have barriers to care, financial, transportation, personal, cognitive, what can we be doing in the ED to help with that secondary prevention? Yeah, this is where... Some ED physicians don't feel comfortable doing that primary care thing, but this is where the, we have to put our primary care hats on at times. I think we've all gotten used to doing that, and we have to do that, especially in areas where, as you already suggested, the patients can't get to their PCP or there is a lack of good PCPs to refer to. And so here, here it's time to put that PCP hat on and do the following. One is simple measures, really simple measures of starting the patient on a calcium and vitamin D regimen. It, it's, it, it's not hard. You don't have to be a primary care physician to, to suggest taking calcium 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams a day, starting vitamin D 600 to 800 milligrams a day. The only thing you need to make sure before you start the calcium, and you've probably already done this when the patient first arrived, but we didn't talk about it yet. We should mention that you should probably do your CBC and your metabolic profile. You want to make sure they're not hyper calcemic to begin with, that which suggests hyperparathyroidism. So providing that not already hypercalcemic, start the calcium, start the vitamin D, very, very simple. Next, we can talk about starting some of the oral biphosphonates. Now, maybe some of your listeners are saying, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're going to do this in the ER by phosphonates? No, 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 no. That, that's the PCPs. They got to do the whole bone density, densiometry studies and all that other stuff. Don't they have to do all that, the FRAC score and all that stuff first? And the answer to that question is no, you do not. This is, you've already proven the patient has osteoporosis. So if you can discuss with your patients about starting biphosphonates, please take the initiative. This is as good a time as any. And you can look up the dosing. It, it's, it's pretty simple. I'll use brand names if that's okay. You know, many of you probably have heard of Fosamax. You can use it daily or there's the weekly version. You can look up the dose online and up to date and anywhere else. It's very simple. There's also res, Resigenate, there's, uh, also brand name Actinil. So there's options for you. They're not expensive. People all, we probably know about some of the, the potential problems with those, such as esophagitis, but there's even liquid forms now. So, so these are at your disposal. Best thing you can do if you do the right thing, if you're able to do this, go for it. Believe me, I don't believe the PCP is going to call you up and yell at you. So go for it. Well, Bob, this has been a fantastic summary of just a lot of the literature, as well as your three decades of experience and how you think about this. Some take-home points. First, vertebral compression fractures are incredibly common. About two-thirds of them are asymptomatic, and we may just find them with a correlate clinically note on the x-ray that we did for something else. They can occur with just minor trauma, especially in women, especially in women with osteoporosis or osteopenia. The most common locations are T10 to L2. What we need to look for and do our good history and physical are for any signs that maybe it's more than just a vertebral compression fracture. Are there retropulse fragments? Are there neurodeficits? Is this actually osteomyelitis or is there something else going on? Is this a lytic lesion or signs of metastases? Starting with an x-ray, but just like rib fractures, our x-rays are not actually that great. So if you have concern, especially if you have concern for something else more serious than moving to your MRI or CT. If it is just a straight up vertebral compression fracture with nothing else complicating it, pain management with acetaminophen and then opioids as needed cautiously with a GI, Senna or Colase as well. But adding on nasal calcitonin, that's a new one for me. And then our bracing, this is something that, you know, you kind of have to have a shared decision-making about what is our practice pattern in our hospital for our team so that we're all doing the same thing and talking with our, our neurosurgeons or spine surgeons about that. But the evidence for bracing is not great. Secondary prevention, some of those calcium, vitamin D, bisphosphonates, and then also, you know, referral to PT in general, just to develop strength, prevent that frailty cycle and prevent future falls. So Bob, thank you so much for being on GEMcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you and hope to run into you in real life at some time in the future. Look forward to running into you also. And this is really my pleasure to do this with you. And, and, and I had a lot of fun. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.